Rahman ve Rahim olan Allah'ın adıyla. Övgü, alemlerin Rabbi, Rahman ve Rahim olan hesap gününün sahibi Allah içindir. Rabbimiz ancak sana ibadet eder ve yalnız senden yardım isteriz. Bizi doğru yola, kendilerine nimet verdiğin kimselerin yolunu ulaştır. Gazab uğrayanların ve sapmışların yoluna değil. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Adam and History podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Nir Shafir. Today our guest is Brett Wilson, an assistant professor of religious studies at McAllister College. Brett, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. And it's a real treat for a lot of our listeners who have been following our almost 100 episodes and have noticed we haven't dabbled in any kind of religious topics or let alone touched on probably the most important book in the history of the Middle East, which is the Quran. Our topic today is mainly going to be focused on the beginning of printing of the Quran during the late Ottoman period. We're also going to talk a little bit about early attempts at something that resembles a modern translation of the Quran into Turkish. And we'll end with some thoughts about the, re- the reception of this change and some of the issues with creating definitive or authoritative versions of the Turkish translation. So, Brett, the first question I have really generally is how and when does printing enter the Ottoman Empire? A lot of people are familiar with the Mutafarika press during the early 18th century, but we have other examples of printing in other languages. So what's the sort of arc here in terms of printing in Ottoman Empire? Well, the the printing press actually comes to the Ottoman Empire quite early, um, comes in the 1490s with uh, Jewish communities that lived in the Ottoman Empire. They're followed very shortly by presses from the other non-Muslim uh, milets, uh, the Greeks uh, and the Armenians, both in subsequent centuries, uh, established presses and, and published throughout the time, throughout the empire, I mean, right, right through Mutaferika to the present. Uh, so there's actually a long history of printing in the Ottoman Empire, it's just that the Muslim community did not print uh, until the 1720s. There were Ottoman statesmen who wanted to utilize printing, especially for maps, for historical texts, for books of geography, and other kinds of uh, non-religious purposes, especially for sciences, etc. But they had trouble getting permission to do so. It wasn't until this very interesting person, Ibrahim Mutaferika, who was a convert to Islam from Transylvania, who is probably of Hungarian-speaking uh, origins, came and he also gathered the political support to actually open a press. And the trick was, when he did so, he had to agree not to print any religious texts. Now, this was important because religious texts were the mainstay, the bread and butter of the calligraphers and the ulama, who basically controlled uh, book production that time period. So basically, by saying that he wouldn't print religious texts meant he wouldn't take their, their business and their jobs, etc. Now, the downside of that agreement from, for him uh, was that it was very hard to run a profitable or even sustainable press not printing those kind of books because those were the most popular books by far. Uh, and we can, we can see from state registries from that period that, you know, the most likely book a person would own would be the Quran or would be uh, a book of prayers or catechism. It wouldn't be a book, a work of history or a work of geography or something of that nature. Those were far more rare. So the Mutaferika press 
it, it had a lot of troubles. It had financial problems. It had personnel problems. Uh, the books were often very expensive, and the press did not make any money. We can contrast this with the European experience in which uh, Bible printing and printing of especially Protestant literature was you know, the main item that was printed um, in, in some of the early, early decades. Uh, and this made it financially feasible, it made it spread quickly, and it was also connected with this uh, surge in enthusiasm for this religious movement. So Mutaferika didn't have that advantage, so he had a lot of trouble. So, I mean, there's this big debate, why did printing take off so late in the, in the Muslim world? And it's, it's a little bit controversial, and people who want to say that there was no intellectual culture in the Muslim world cite this as an example. But from what I gathered, there's plenty of demand for texts. It's just that the most popular texts were off-limits to the Mutafarika press. Right. We can't say, we can't deduct from the fact that printing came late that there wasn't a lot of intellectual activity going on. There are, are lots of manuscript texts circulating. Uh, there is a, you know, as the scholarship of several people is showing in the 18th century, there is a lot going on intellectually. Um, so I think it's, it's a bad assumption, yeah. As, as one of the crucial factors, as you mentioned, the, the barrier to printing that the ulama presented, keeping it sort of within this monopolized manuscript tradition, what changed in the 19th century that allowed the printing of the, the Quran, which is our, our topic of this discussion? There are some tectonic changes that are occurring in the 19th century. Um, one is the modernization of the state uh, through the Tanzimat, um, through the expansion of the bureaucracy, through the opening of uh, state schools, and these other kinds of uh, processes which created a culture that needed more books and also had more literate people. Um, and oftentimes, right, th these weren't, uh, the, the new schools that were opening weren't just religious schools. Most of them were, were kind of, uh, not, I wouldn't say secular schools, but they were state schools that had a, a bit of religious content, but also more, um, we might call secular content, for lack of a better term, uh, languages, uh, mathematics, history, geography, uh, the kind of things that would be helpful for people in a bureaucracy or, an, or a military to know. Um, so to provide a modern style of education, a lot more books were needed, um, for sure. Now, the case of the Quran is, is, re is related to this, uh, but it's also a bit of, of its own kind of thing. Um, so we see religious texts begin to be printed in 1803, when a catechism of uh, Mehmet Birgivi is published. And it's published with a very specific purpose, and it, it sheds a lot of light on the process. Uh, it's published for the soldiers of the new uh, military corps that are created, the Nizami Jadid soldiers of that, that period. And it's financed privately by um, Hatije Sultan, daughter of Sultan Mustafa III. And she says that it's for the edification of the soldiers and for the people in general, the, the Ame. And uh, it is... In a very clear Turkish, uh, it, is, it has um, diacritical marks for the pronunciation. Now, we can't assume that most of those people were literate, actually. We can assume that probably only a few of them were, and that this book was being read out loud in some kind of educational context uh, for these people. And also, it's related to a particular shift in... Yeah, there's a kind of push to heighten 
uh, Sunni identity and consciousness in that period. Okay, and this is in opposition to the Janissary Corp, who are very powerful in this period, who are causing a lot of problems for different Ottoman sultans. Um, and so this new, uh, this new army uh, division gets these kind of a bit, some overt Sunni identifications along with it. And this book is one of those things. Uh, but regardless of that, we don't see the Quran printed in this period. And it's for the same reason, right? Somehow religious texts have become legal, but the actual Quran or the Mus'haf, that is the kind of core of it. You know, that's the major book that's produced. That's the book that, you know, everyone will want to own or at least have a copy in their house, even if they didn't know how to read it, right? This could just be a kind of uh, sacred object that was kept somewhere revered. These could not be produced and in the Ottoman Empire, and in fact, they were illegal even to circulate in the Ottoman Empire. And that goes back um, to the prohibition on the books, even from the Mutafarika time, even from before that time. And what was the control process? I mean, how could the state control and uh, seize and, and stop people from printing or circulating printed texts? Well, printing was still very centralized at that time. For one thing, to get a press off the ground was very expensive. Uh, and it required a lot of expertise, which very few people had in that time period. So the first press you have is the is the Mutaferika press, the Daratiba, oh, you know, changes the name a few times, and then you get the the Uskadar press, which is basically a military press and used to print things for the Ottoman military, and sometimes there are other things too. So it wasn't it wouldn't be the kind of thing that you could just you know decide to open up shop and do it. First of all, you needed permission. But what was happening? Uh, and what could be controlled was the illegal books coming from abroad. And we start to see uh, in the 1850s reports of Qurans showing up schools uh, and at the borders, people crossing the border carrying crates of books. And where were these coming from? Like India, Iran, that yeah, area? Or? The, fir- the very first ones come from Iran. And Iran is the most commonly named source of the books. There are also prints from India and prints from Russia, especially, as well as prints from from Europe. There, you know, there were uh, there was the Flegel version of the Quran that was printed, which which was used very widely. Actually, the first Quran ever printed, I, I wanted to mention this, was printed in Venice, and it was intended to be exported to the Ottoman Empire and other ports in the Medi- in the Eastern Mediterranean. This was a part of the kind of growing print capitalism that was emerging in the early 16th century. And those books were actually brought to Istanbul to be sold and were, were seized and probably destroyed. We don't, we don't really know exactly what happened to them. And how do they produce these printed Qurans in Venice? This is the early period. They have movable yes. type? Yes, or... there are movable type printed Qurans. Um, and it's a very rudimentary stage of um, right, designing the, the actual uh, letter blocks. Uh, so it's a, it's a very stilted looking text. It's not very flowing, um, and it has, you know, a lot of actual kind of technical mistakes as well. Do you know the price? I mean, didn't... we have figures for the um, the late uh, 18th century and early 19th century. Um, still trying to to hammer out uh, how it emerges across the course of the 19th century. Um, but for example, in the late in the late 18th century, it would have caught co- it would have cost the equivalent to about. Uh, 10 days wages for a skilled worker in Istanbul, okay? And that would be about roughly 20 days wages for an unskilled worker in Istanbul. So if you think about how many books you've ever bought that 
10 days wages, you know, probably not very many. Those are very expensive books for most people. Um, so they weren't particularly accessible. And that becomes actually the hallmark of the arguments that many people make about why they should print the Quran, because more and more people want to own them. Uh, and we have these copies which are much cheaper than the manuscript copies coming from Iran, from Russia, and from elsewhere. And people are buying them, and people don't have any problem with them being illegal. Um, we don't know, unfortunately, how much they cost. Um, we can only assume that they were substantially cheaper than what was available. In Iran, it seems that they didn't have a problem printing the Quran from the beginning. So I don't know all the facts in the Iranian case, but what I do know is that the way in which printing came to Iran was often by collaboration between Iranians and Bible printing societies. And it seems that there was some kind of response to seeing what these Bible societies were doing in the early 19th century. So, for example, in Iran, the first book printed is, is, a, is a Quran. Is that perhaps a response uh, to the efforts of missionaries to send the Bible all over the world in that period, giving away massive quantities of the Bible, which we also see happening in the Ottoman Empire? So there's a different trajectory in Iran and in India, but also because there are totally different political considerations there. And I don't know all the dynamics of that. Uh, but the, the, the issue in Istanbul seems to be more of the ulama had retained a very strong position here and a very strong control of that sphere. Whereas uh, in Iran, for some reason, that wasn't the case. I don't know why that is the case. In India, of course, it's very different. Uh, it's, it's usually the press comes with uh, missionaries or with colonial regimes um, printing has a very different kind of kind of sense there. So what changed in the 19th century? I mean, what was the first attempt to print the Quran uh, in the Ottoman Empire or by, uh, by the Ottomans? When all these uh, illegal foreign Qurans started circulating in the Ottoman domains, uh, we see a period in which they confiscate them for about 20 years. And some... Statesmen say, this is ridiculous, um, we need to just start producing them on our own and cut out this problem because obviously people want to have these books. The ulama does not give permission, however, for that. And uh, what happens is then uh, they arrange a deal, which is a very kind of traditional Ottoman deal, which is to give a concession to a foreigner to import the product exclusively uh, to provide it. So in this case, uh, there was a person... Uh, named Aristide Fanton, who met Namik Kemal, the famous uh, late Ottoman uh, intellectual, poet, writer, extraordinaire, etc. They met in London, and they, they figured out a way to obtain this concession to print Qurans in London and bring them uh, to the Ottoman Empire. Now, right, one of the main considerations about why foreign Qurans were illegal was they were often accused of being inaccurate or they hadn't been checked by the ulama, right? They, they, they weren't, they didn't have a stamp of guarantee. So there was a particular technology that came around in this time period which made it possible to make an exact reproduction of vi venerable Ottoman manuscript Qurans. This technology is called lithography. And um, in the initial phase of lithography, we're talking about lithography means stone printing, literally. You know, in this a particular type of stone, originally from Bavaria, that you could, you know, 
draw an image on or sketch an image on and reproduce it uh, exactly uh, for much cheaper than, than movable type printing and obviously giving you a lot more leeway in terms of you know, what you do. Uh, in Europe, it was used primarily for art, for reproducing pictures. Um, and it wasn't possible to, you know, until the 1850s or 1860s to take an image of something, to actually take a picture and then put that on the stone. Okay? That's what's called photolithography. So this came around right at this time period when the Ottoman Quran debate was, was happening. Um, so this was the technology that Namak Kemal and Fanton used. Uh, they took the very famous Mus'haf of Hafiz Osman, uh, which was owned by um, Mustafa Fazl Pasha. Hafiz Osman is uh, a very famous Ottoman calligrapher who refined the style of uh, Sheikh Hamdullah and produced a kind of copy that's, that's very widely revered as being one of the most beautiful in, in Ottoman history. Um, so by taking that Quran and, and reproducing it, you could eliminate the questions about authenticity and accuracy. You could show a connection between the Ottoman calligraphic tradition and the printed editions of the Quran. Uh, and you could also uh, satisfy the aesthetic tastes uh, of people who wanted to see that kind of, that kind of flowing hand. So this occurs. Uh, they do get the concession. They do actually print these books in London. They do bring them to the Ottoman Empire, and they do cause a debate. Um, you know, several people say that, you know, printing the Quran is a bad idea. Um, and why is it a bad idea? They have several different arguments. Uh, one of them is that, A, it's being printed in a non-Muslim country by, by God knows who, and, you know, we should be producing these texts our own. It doesn't make sense. Uh, they also raise questions about the ritual purity of the printing process, uh, basically along the lines of, well, we know what's used in producing a manuscript version. We've known for centuries. Uh, but what kind of oils are in the inks? What kind of uh, materials are in the brushes and so forth? Uh, is it respectful to put heavy pressure on a Quran you know, with, with mechanical violence and so forth? And there's also an argument that is popular that says, you know, this will eliminate the jobs of the calligraphers. It will make them destitute, and that's completely unethical. Um, so these kind of things are going about. Uh, and of course, Namak Kemal and his, his group of people have their own arguments about why it's necessary. Basically, that it makes books cheaper. Uh, it makes the Quran more widely read. Uh, it uh, actually gives people an accurate version produced by one of the best Ottoman calligraphers, which, which before this time they never had access to. And they say, you know, it's ridiculous to say that the calligraphers um, are going to be made jobless by this. Actually, all of the calligraphers are buying copies of this because they want to copy Hafiz Osman's script. They've never actually seen a copy of Hafiz Osman before. And that uh, everyone, you know, rich and poor from the, and he literally says, from the porters in the bazaar to the you know highest statesmen, want a copy. So the situation you've set up for us here, where the first uh, lithographed Qurans are being imported from outside to the Ottoman Empire, you have some resistance from the ulema, but the pull factors, you know, the cost, the demand is going to be too much for the situation to go on. When does domestic production of Quran printing begin? Because of the controversies around the Namik Kemal version. Um, and also because 
they weren't able to produce the volume that was actually needed uh, in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the state says, okay, we're, we're going to do this. Uh, and they begin to organize the first Ottoman printing, which occurs in 1874. It's a photolithographic version of another famous Ottoman calligrapher, Shekherzadeh. Uh, and when they do decide to do this, you know, despite all the hesitancy that they had had in the previous decades, when they go into it, they, they go into it in a very massive way. Uh, the first official order to print Qurans places an order for 500,000 copies or half a million copies of the Quran. Um, and this would have been a massive undertaking. I mean, they had, they had never printed this many copies of any book before. And this number probably trumps any previous printing of the Quran anywhere in the world until that period. Um, whether or not they actually achieved 500,000 copies, it's hard to say. Um, I've been studying different documents in the Ottoman archives, uh, which show the kind of uh, frantic uh, attempts to create more capacity to print in that period in, able, in, in order to meet that order. Um, but what I also see is that about 10 years later, they place another order for another 500,000 copies. Um, so a part of me wonders if that's an exact number or if it's, uh, it's a way of saying we need to print a lot of Qurans. Maybe it's a kind of formulaic thing. I'm not quite sure yet. And was this a private publishing company? I, I didn't get exactly. Is this a, a state press or? The first versions are printed in the uh, Matbai Amire, which is the original Mutaferika press. Okay, It changes names sometime in between. Um, so it first happens there, but it's it's very clear from the, from the archives that that press didn't have the capacity. So you have orders to clear out certain parts of different buildings in Istanbul and orders to buy new printing presses to meet the demand for this order. Uh, but they bear the stamp of Matbai Amire. So basically, once they begin to print these Qurans, we see massive distributions of these Qurans. Um, Ottoman schools receive them. Uh, Ottoman ministries receive them. Ottoman soldiers. Uh, but also as... Um, the Ottoman state begins to project its authority abroad under Abdul Hamid II, we see an increasing number of sending these books abroad as presents or just gifts to local notables, to uh, populations within the Ottoman Empire who are uh, not, very, not very comfortable with Ottoman rule or not very familiar with Ottoman rule. Uh, so we see as, as the Ottoman state modernizes and wants to expand its influence and control over its own population and over worldwide uh, Muslims, uh, we see these books being given away in massive, massive quantities. Uh, and one thing we see repeatedly in all the documents and in the actual copies of the Quran themselves are mentions of how the book should be uh, available for everyone. And they, they say that it should be sold or given away. And if they're sold, they should be sold at a price that everyone can afford. Um, and so studying this, we can really see that Probably these books uh, were costing the Ottoman state a lot of money. They were not making money off of them. And it was seen as a kind of just part of the budget that needed to happen, right? It was a, it was a kind of a public good. Uh, and this notion of an accessible Quran and a Quran that everyone can own uh, becomes very important uh, as we start to get into talking about um, translating the Quran and the idea that the Quran is accessible not only as a book you can own, 
but also as a book you can read and understand in your own language. Uh, so there's a there's a developing idea of accessibility that you know, Quran wasn't that accessible in a previous period as a book. You know, probably you could learn to recite it in a lot of places easily, uh, but to actually have your own copy, uh, that's a kind of a modern notion that emerges in the late Ottoman period. Was it popular to have at least some kind of tafsir explanation of the Quran for people, or was this also hard to obtain? Actually, tafsirs are printed long before Qurans are printed. That's one of the interesting kind of things that you see. Uh, so you have tafsirs that are printed in the early Tanzimat, uh, which, which have actually the Quranic verses in movable type print. Okay? Uh, but those aren't really considered the same as a, as a mushaf, as a copy of the Quran. Uh, so there's not a big deal about that. Um, but again, these look like they were, they were expensive books, primarily for uh, Ottoman statesmen, more educated readers, people with some money. They have nice bindings usually, uh, and so forth. You know, most people would have gotten their information about the Quran from, you know, mosques, from sermons, from uh, discussion circles uh, with the imam, this kind of thing. Uh, they wouldn't have been reading about them because they weren't literate, right? There were very few literate people. But over the course of the 19th century, that's changing. Um, and we have a much larger number of people reading books, owning books, going to school. Uh, and of course, that only increases as time goes by. And the inevitable conclusion is that there should be translations of the Quran. Yeah, so actually, um, Turkish translations are very, very old. Um, they've existed probably from the 1300s, um, and at the latest from the 1400s. And these would have been interlinear versions, um, some of which were kind of like glossaries with the words underneath kind of as a, as, a, as a reading aid, but some of them actually have a flowing text that you can, you can read as a, uh, you know, as a text on its own. Uh, but they're always interlinear, and they're always kind of uh, subordinated to the Arabic text. They're written underneath. Uh, they're usually in smaller letters. They're usually in an uglier script. Uh, so they're not something that's, you know, <clears throat> they're graphically dominated, you could say, uh, on the page by the, by the, by the original Arabic uh, script of the Quran. And so they're, they're clearly supplementary texts. They're not a text you would read, you know, or you could read uh, on its own necessarily. But, you know, what's interesting is that in the late 19th century, uh, when you have lots of, uh, you know, Ottoman intellectuals being influenced by the ideas of the Enlightenment um, and various modernization discourses uh, that are circulating, um, they start to say more and more that people should understand the Quran and that that's really important. Um, and that... And really, they should understand it directly, right? And what they mean by that is, of course, without the ulama, in some sense, uh, and using their own mind, their own rationality to think about it. Some of them seem not to really be aware that these interlinear translations existed. Yeah, what is the background? The, what, is, what would be the education of the type of person who would av- advocate that? Could you give an example of sure, one sure. such person? Uh, for example, um, a person like Ahmed Midhat, who is a, a journalist who, you know, He's, he's in the Ottoman, Ottoman elite intelligentsia, right? He's a publisher, etc. cetera. Uh, folks like Shemsetin Sami, basically promoters of reform and modernization, uh, pr- promoters of instilling modern values in Ottoman subjects, and, and, and also, to some extent, arguing against the authority of the ulama, right? Who, you know, pretty much dominated the control of that kind of discourse until this period of time. And so you really see in a way that for people who are literate and people who can, who can have those books, 
In a lot of ways, those books are replacing the ulama for them, right? They're, 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 they're accessing interpretations of the Quran on their own. And this only builds over time. We don't see it really go away. Uh, and more and more people from different kinds of backgrounds start to support the translation of the Quran. We have, we have members of the ulama who start to say, yes, it's, it's much better to actually understand the Quran. Uh, and this is a kind of snowball that builds up until the Republic. And the trouble is that you cannot publish something called a translation uh, in the late Ottoman period until 1924. Um, and we see examples of this where you know, people wanted to publish a translation of the Quran and they, they just couldn't. And they're, they're rejected by the, by the oversight committee of the ulama. There were books that we would, you know, you and I would call a translation if we saw it, um, but they weren't called translations. Uh, they were usually called tefsir. Uh, sometimes they were called me'al. There are some cases where you see, for example, a book that is called a tefsir, but then you look in the inside and it'll list a line of the Quran, original Quran, then underneath it'll have a, like a T, which stands for translation, and then it'll be a translation, uh, but in a kind of interlinear format again. Um, so there's a kind of a, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, when's the first translation, when's the end of tafsir. There's really kind of a spectrum in which you see a gradual shift from a, a more uh, expansive commentary, more, more complex and expansive commentary tradition, to increasingly succinct commentary to what we might call translation. So we've kind of talked about the leading role of the state in this whole process, trying to sort of control it a little bit and also promote the, the printing of the Quran. Moving into the Republican period, what is the stance of the state vis-a-vis -vis publishing Quran, publishing translations of the Quran? We know that it wasn't a period of particular interest in, in religious texts in general from a state perspective because of you know this, this struggle between the, the old ulama and the, the religious establishments and the new uh, regime. So what happens there? Right, you have a lot of people who had been awaiting a kind of every man's Quran in Turkish for some time, and who had been actually writing them, composing them, but not being able to publish them necessarily. And of course, if you think about you know, what Zia Gokalp's idea of creating a kind of uh, national religion, right, or, or a religion that promoted and supported national values, and he, you know, and he he mentioned, of course, the phrase the Türkçe Quran and uh, talked about prayer in the vernacular, the, the call to prayer in the vernacular, etc. You know, he really viewed a, a Turkish Islam as something that would be a great thing for the Turkish nation. It would build social solidarity, it would promote, uh, you know, shared beliefs, and, and so forth. Uh, camaraderie, all these kind of things. And a lot of people share his ideas. And in 1924, we're talking about, bef right, just before a lot of the the changes occur, the closing of the madrasas and all these kinds of things, uh, the abolishment of the Sufi orders. So in 1924, they allow people to publish whatever they want in terms of religious texts. They really open up the kind of spectrum. And we see in Ramadan of 1924, uh, three translations of the Quran being published. This is the first Ramadan of the Turkish Republic. Uh, and we have these translations coming out. Um, none of them are written by a member of the ulama. Okay, which is an important thing, right? They probably didn't have as easy of a time getting them published at this time period. <laughs> I don't know the exact story on that. They were men of letters. They were, uh, you know, from elite backgrounds and usually had an affiliation with the state, had worked for as teachers or as bureaucrats in some capacity. 
Uh, and when their translations came out, uh, there was a real uproar uh, among uh, the reading public, you know, mostly among uh, more devout kind of intellectuals, people af affiliated with the uh, journals uh, Sibylle Rashad and other kind of uh, more devout journals. And they're, you know, accused of being very unqualified to do a translation okay, because they don't have the proper education. They don't have, they don't know Arabic well enough. And one of them is actually accused of doing his translation from a French translation, which turned out to be true. Uh, so we have these various kind of interesting controversies happening uh, in this time period. And they receive, you know, an amazing amount of scrutiny in the, in the media. You know, you have dozens of people writing reviews about, you know, you did a terrible translation of this, this verse and so on. And, uh, and we see also these wide-ranging conversations about the interpretation uh, in the public sphere. So what happens is this public outcry causes the Turkish uh, parliament to say, well, let's sponsor an official translation. So it's a very similar kind of uh, process that happened with the printing. Okay, there's a, there's a kind of uh, you know, entrepreneurial thing going on there, people importing Qurans, people printing them illegally. Then the state comes in and says, okay, this is a Quran, we have to do it really properly and we have to protect it. The same thing happens with translation. And so the, the parliament gives Dianet uh, a budget to sponsor an, a, an official translation. And it's clear that the parliament hoped they would create some kind of very accessible, every man's Turkish Quran, which would really symbolically wed this you know, new moment in Turkish history with, with, the, with, with Islam in some sense, would create some kind of religious text for the new nation. Um, and Dianet chooses uh, two different people to work on this. Uh, one of them is Mehmet Akif Ersoy, who was a very prominent poet and devout journalist, who had written for many years in different journals. And um, he's chosen to do the translation. A member of the late Ottoman ulama, Mehmet uh, Hamdi Yazir Elmalullah, is chosen to do the a tafsir to go along with it. And there's a long saga that, that goes along with this. Uh, but it's interesting that it, these people were chosen because neither of them really represented uh, the values of the new regime in Ankara. Okay? These were both people who... Uh, believed uh, that Islam should play a prominent role in public life. Uh, they were against um, doing any kind of drastic reforms to religious life. They didn't like Zia Gokup's idea of a Turkish of a Turkche Quran. They didn't like didn't like this at all. Uh, so it's it's interesting that they're that, and kind of ironic that they're chosen to do it. Mehmet Akif Ersoy um, accepts a commission from Dianet to to compose a translation which is hoped to be this formative text in the Turkish nation. He goes to Egypt in 1925, and he stays there um, for a little over a decade without coming back to Turkey. And during this time, he's working on the translation. There are different theories about why he decides not to actually give this translation to Dianet in the end. He, he decides in the, early, in the early 30s to drop the, to drop the contract, pull out of it and cancel it. And so after these years of waiting for it, you know, many people were, were devastated that he didn't give it to them. Uh, he was also seen as uniquely suited to do this because he was a very prominent poet. He had a very good command of Arabic. And he was a person that the devout intellectuals, he was one of them, right? They would have accepted his translation, possibly, uh, had it been composed. Um, he, when he pulls out of the project, um, it's given to... Uh, 
the composer of the tafsir, Elmal Hamdiyazir, to do the translation also. And if you look at the introduction to this translation, uh, you'll see that he doesn't believe in Quran translation at all. Um, and he seems to, in the way that he composed it, wanted to basically uh, subvert the aims of the project of cre creating a very accessible translation. Right? So the final product is a nine-volume uh, tafsir. Uh, it does have translation uh, followed by long portions of, of commentary. But the language of the translation is also um, a bit archaic and a bit difficult and wouldn't have been something that would have been really easy or, or even catchy for most people to read in that time period. So that's published in the 30s by Dianet, and it does not become a every man's Quran. It becomes more of a kind of scholastic textbook for people in the Ilahiyat schools uh, and so forth. Um, now, an interesting thing is that people held on to the hope that Mehmed Akif's translation would still come out. Okay, so they obviously were not satisfied with the other one. Uh, and the story of Mehmed Akif's translation has become a kind of dramatic saga in contemporary discussions. Uh, so he, he had health problems and decided to come back to Turkey in the mid-30s. Uh, and he left his manuscript of his translation with a good friend in Egypt, um, Mehmed Isan, uh, the father of Ekmeladin Isanulu. Okay. Uh, he left the copy with him and said, if I return back from Turkey, I'm going to finish this translation and then it, you know, we can publish it later. If I don't return, I want you to burn it. I don't want anyone to have it. Okay. So after Akif's death, um, several people went to Mehmed Isan and tried to obtain the, the translation. He told everyone that had been burned, that he had burned it. Um, and people held on to the hope that this translation still existed until the 1990s. Um, and in the 1990s, um, someone who was actually present when Mehmed Isan died said that they had actually observed the, the manuscript being burned in Cairo. Okay. Um, that was in 1992 when he announced this. So everyone cut off their hope after that. Well, just last year, um, a, lot, a part of the manuscript was found. One third of the manuscript was found and was published by a printing house here in Istanbul. And people have been talking about it a lot recently uh, because it's, the, it's been the kind of holy grail for people who wanted uh, you know, the ideal Turkish translation of the Quran. Now, whether it is or not is, is still uh, up for debate, I suppose. People you know, are still analyzing it. Um, but it's been a big, big news in, in recent Turkish Quran translation history. Okay, so now I want to kind of go back to kind of what's the larger impact of this? I mean, we have a variety, you know, a general trend to increasing access to Quran, increasing access both through printing, making much making much cheaper to get it through, I mean, much easier to read a Quran uh, through translations. I mean, how does this change Islam in uh, the late Ottoman Empire in the Turkish Republic? Are we, you know, is this a shift Toward, I mean, we've talked a bit about a shift from an oral to a textual culture. Does this also, for instance, show a shift from like uh, to a more Quran-centric Islam? It's a really interesting question, and you know, one of the things that it's done is, and what its opponents feared it would do, is that it's really opened up interpretation uh, for a much wider variety of people, and has and those people can you know also publish their ideas. So, for example, even in the twenties. 
when these translations came out, there were interesting debates. One of them was based upon one of these translations, and they said, uh, you know, I've studied this verse in, you know, the Surah of the Cow, and I think that it means that, you know, Ramadan fasting is actually optional, and that the verse says that you can either fast or you can feed a poor person instead. Okay, and this was published in a newspaper, right? Started a huge debate. Uh, and since then, um, there have been lots of things like this, right? And, and people actually using these translations rather than the original Quran as a basis for reasoning about how Islam should be lived in modern Turkey. And this, I think, feeds exactly into what you're saying, that it is definitely a more book-centric, bibliocentric uh, type of Islamic culture here. Some people talk about it as a kind of Protestantization of, of Islam in Turkey and elsewhere. But I think that's also a symptom of the larger Muslim world, that books have become far more important than the ulama in the modern period. Because the ulama have been politically marginalized in a lot of contexts, not all, but a lot of contexts, uh, and also because they've their prestige has fallen a bit as well because you know they they didn't embrace modern sciences, which were the sciences of of power and progress and modernization. They 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 in many places and especially in Turkey, uh, their authority was in many times crushed or destroyed or marginalized. Uh, so these books often fit into a kind of scheme which the early republic wanted to promote, which was in Islam, which is more in the realm of private conscious and private study and private belief, rather than as a force of public uh, power or, or something that really had a strong presence in the public sphere in a political way or an intellectual way. You know, basically, be a modern uh, person, a good citizen, and you know, if you're interested in reading about religion, well, here are the books, and you can make of it what you want. In some sense, this is true. This isn't absolutely the case. Uh, of course, Dianet um, is one of the largest uh, ministries of religious affairs that exists, but it also promotes uh, some similar trends. Previously, I've heard about you know the Turkish, I guess the Dianet, uh, coming up with new hadith collections, um, you know, and these rather extravagant plans to modernize reform yeah like collect these sources and present them in a new fashion in a new authoritative fashion is there a trajectory like this is this the story or is it in some instances yes um you know the idea of dianet i think throughout has been to create a suitably modern islam which which works well in the context of our nation i like this phrase you know a suitable uh, an islam suitable for the for the nation for the Turkish nation, if we were looking at other, the story of printing the Quran and other Islamic nations um, in the 20th century, like in Iran or India or Pakistan, I mean, do we see a similar story, a different story, if we're to compare it to the Arab countries or Malaysia or so forth? I mean, what what is the story in comparison? I think that, yeah, there are very similar trends, right? Um, the 20th century has been pretty disastrous for the authority of Sufis. Right, where if you think about where they were in the 19th or the 18th century, and where they are now, usually Sufism has been defined as as being uh, somehow not suitable with modernity or, or rep- representing some kind of superstitious past. Um, in terms of books, I think there's also a very similar trend. Um, usually, uh, right, these ministries of religious education in different countries are affiliated with a kind of 
modernizing, and often sometimes a secular state. The production of the Quran um, and of Quran translations has, has really exploded since the 1950s. Um, and what you see, what you see happening uh, in the 70s, early 80s, is more and more regimes publishing not only Arabic versions, but also their own translations. Okay, so the biggest one, the most important one in the world is the King Fahad complex for printing the Holy Quran, which is in Medina. Um, and they print not only more, Quran, more Arabic Qurans than anyone else, they, pr they print more translations than anyone else in the world. And we see some interesting kind of similarities between what happened uh, in the late Ottoman period and the early Republican period and what happening, is happening now is that uh, the Quran was basically made in the modern period into a non-commercial item uh, that was given away in massive quantities um, by either a sovereign or by an organization, making it incredibly uh, accessible and in some ways ubiquitous, um, but also clearly having some kind of uh, agenda attached to it, right? Whether it's promoting the religious authority of a particular group or a particular state, or whether it's um, expanding the influence of their interpretations of the Quran. Um, now you can get these books very, very cheaply or oftentimes just free, right? Every Hajj, everyone who goes on the Hajj gets a free copy. Uh, you, can, you can write to or, you know, send an email to Saudi embassies and get a free copy in a translation in, in almost 50 languages. When people talk about the Quran nowadays, you know, they, they have these books usually and they're using them and they come from a certain place and they have uh, oftentimes a certain affiliation or interpretation attached to them. Well, Brett, this has been a very fascinating topic and really a, a change of directions for us. You've touched on a lot of topics that we haven't dealt with yet on the podcast, issues of literary culture and printing and also this intersection of the political and religious establishment with the larger intellectual transformations that are taking place during the 19th and 20th centuries. Thanks, Chris and Nir. It's been really uh, fun talking with you guys, and uh, I look forward to uh, more Ottoman podcasts. And so for our listeners, Brad, of course, is, has no shortage of information, but we'd like to cut the podcast off here at this point. We've, we've gone on long enough, for, but for those who want to find out more, we do have a select bibliography on the website. We can also leave your comments and questions. And also you should look forward to Brett's book, which is coming out within the next year with Oxford University Press. Revealed for the masses, translating the Quran in the age of nationalism. Thank you for listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. That's all for this time. Until next episode, take care.